there's a lot of work on religion and violence out there, and most of it is about causation. So uh, there's a lot of back and forth. Does religion cause violence? Uh, some people say yes, it does. Some people say no, it doesn't. In this book, I'm not getting into that issue. I'm steering completely clear of it. What I'm looking at is how religion is used to justify violence. So I'm just looking at um, ways in which religion is used to justify violence. Come in, come in. Just looking at ways in which religion is used to justify violence. So to start off, I'm going to uh, give you a case where the um, explanation for an instance of religious violence is radically distinct from the justification. How many people know, have heard of this event, the Mountain and Meadow Massacre? One, two, not many. Right. Okay. Feel the need to say anything about it? Just that it existed. So, if someone said September the 11th to you in the 19th century in America, and you were up on current affairs, you'd probably assume they were talking about this event. Okay? This is an extremely violent massacre. Over 100 people were uh, killed. Uh, and they're, as far as we can tell, completely innocent. Okay, um, and mysteriously, the perpetrators were all, well, virtually all Mormons in Utah, who dressed up as uh, local Indians. This is a very strange um, piece of American history. So. The Fancher-Baker Party, they're a wagon train of immigrants. There are a lot of these wagon trains going through Utah at the time to uh, start a new life in California. Uh, 120 adults and children and 700 head of cattle. All of the adults were slaughtered by um, these Mormons dressed up as Indians. 17 young children and infants were spared and adopted into nearby Mormon families under the erroneous assumption that they wouldn't wouldn't remember what had happened. Okay, um, the whole thing was uh, a bit of a public relations disaster, apart from anything for the Mormons, because uh, no one believed the uh, Indians did its story, um, and um, the local Indians uh, denied doing it, and everyone believed it was the Mormons. Okay, why did they do this? Okay, so here's the explanation. In 1857, Utah was majority Mormon. Brigham Young is both the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and the governor of Utah Territory. So it's a kind of uh, a semi-theocracy. Utah Territory is semi-independent and is engaged in a complicated struggle over its future with the Gentile, as they called it, United States government. These wagon trains of immigrants regularly pass through Utah Territory, and generally, the Mormons used their influence to prevent attacks on the wagon trains by local Indians and had good relations with these local Indians. Um, however, they decided that uh, their role was unappreciated by the uh, United States government, the Gentiles, and the Utah leadership decided that if there was a massacre, an Indian massacre of wagon train immigrants, then Washington would better appreciate Utah's role as protector of the immigrants. So Brigham Young announced Indians will no longer be held back. He makes a big public announcement. 
to the US government. And then um, Mormons go and try and encourage Indians to massacre a wagon train of emigrants. Uh, the local Indians don't want to do this. It's a very bad idea. And this leads to the, um, the whole plan of dressing up as Indians and massacring a wagon train load of immigrants. Okay, now here's something very... I've given you uh, a very short sketch of the main explanation for this event. Okay, uh, now I'm going to give you a moral justification right, in the eyes of the local Mormons of the time, or many of them. Okay? This is radically different from uh, the explanation, so the two completely come apart. Um, and it may be surprising that you would consider massacring people to be something that could be morally justified, but it turns out that many 19th century Mormons did consider this act to be justified. Uh, there was eventually a trial about 20 years after the event. It, it, the, the trial got caught up in the US Civil War and was delayed and delayed and carried on, and um, eventually the massacre leader, John D. Lee, uh, was tried and he was uh, eventually executed by firing squad. This will become important later. And um, this is what he said. He said, look, I was guided in all that I did, which is called criminal, by the orders of the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and he didn't, in fact, think what he'd done was criminal. Um, what he thought was that the adult members of the Fancher Baker Party had committed serious sins and they needed others, other people, to come and shed their blood for the remission of their sins. That's, uh, that's his language. What does this mean? Well, he's referring to the doctrine of blood atonement, which was a uh, Mormon doctrine of the uh, 19th century. It was repudiated at much the same time that uh, polygamy was uh, repudiated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Anyway, here's the doctrine. Um, there is, look, I won't read you the whole thing, but the gist of it is there are certain sins that um, are pretty bad. You cannot, um, you cannot ascend to heaven and live in a state of exaltation with God, as the Mormons referred to it, unless you are first, unless you first have your blood spilt on the ground, that doesn't mean just have a drop of blood spilled on the ground, it means being killed. Okay? So the only way you can get into this very desirable state of affairs, the uh, state of exaltation with God, is by being killed. So in fact, because um, uh, Lee thought that the Fancher Baker Party, the adult members of it, uh, needed blood atonement, he thought he was doing a good deed by killing them. Okay? So it's a kind of an appeal to consequence, a consequentialist justification, if you like, although I'm not claiming that Peter Singer would uh, <coughs> go along with it or anything like that. Um, now, it's not clear why the adult members of the Fancher-Baker party needed blood atonement. There were a raft of uh, things that you could do in 19th century Utah to warrant blood atonement. Uh, here are some of them. And these are three things they've been accused of. They were accused of harbouring Mormon apostates, trying to flee Utah. This is perhaps quite likely, and uh, that's enough to warrant blood atonement. They're accused of being involved in the 1844 murder of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. Again, uh, enough to warrant blood atonement. And they're accused of murdering local Indians by poisoning wells. This is, this is in fact, very unlikely that they did this. 
the second one, it's possible that uh, some of them were involved, but it's unlikely that all of them were involved. Um, the first one is the most likely. Okay, now, so here's, I, I've kind of said this already, without blood atonement, serious sinners who have committed certain acts are not going to get to live in a state of exaltation with God. I'll explain that's what this means a bit later. It doesn't mean just going to heaven. It's a certain class in heaven, if you like. It's a, it's a better form of heaven than uh, just regular heaven. So it's first class as opposed to economy. Um, so it's morally praiseworthy to blood atone <coughs> serious sinners. The benefits of eternal existence in a state of exaltation with God far outweigh the harms of being killed. Uh, traditional executions in Utah have been by firing squad, as this is consistent with the, the doctrine of blood atonement. People still take this seriously. So this is a case in 2010. The state of Utah has uh, shifted to uh, using uh, lethal injection. But uh, this convicted murderer, uh, Utah Morgan, obviously, threatened to sue the state of Utah to force it to execute him via firing squad rather than lethal injection, and he appealed to his Mormon beliefs. This is a bit embarrassing for the Church of Latter-day Saints because, of course, they've uh, formally renounced the doctrine. Okay, so there's the justification, and as you can see, it's got nothing to do with uh, a political explanation for the event. Now, um, generally, um, in this debate I mentioned about... Um, whether religion causes violence, both sides in the debate, both people who claim that uh, religion is a leading cause of violence, Dawkins and Dennett and Sam Harris and so forth, and people who claim that uh, really religion doesn't play much of a role at all in causing violence, but it's just used as propaganda on part, behalf of violence that has political causes, both sides tend to denigrate these justifications. Okay? They tend, insofar as they refer to them at all, to say, look, this justification is just ridiculous. And you can see why uh, both sides kind of have a stake in this. So Dawkins, Dennett and Harris want to integrate all religious reasoning. Those who claim that uh, religion uh, doesn't cause violence, or, uh, or generally doesn't cause violence, um, uh, are typically not inclined to uh, pay much attention to the quality of the uh, justifications offered. But I think they're pretty good on the whole. I've looked at a whole raft of these justifications that are offered appealing to religion, and um, what I want to say is, um, look, the justifications offered are generally pretty well formed, and they're often clearly articulated, but they rely on very contentious premises. You've got to have the right religious worldview um, to ground the premises that are offered on behalf of, uh, to accept the justifications. But there's nothing wrong with the reasoning that's uh, on offer once you've, uh, if you accept those premises. So uh, you might well think the arguments are, to uh, give it sort of uh, informal logic spin, uh, valid but not sound. So, um, anyway, that is my view. Um, I've given you one explanation, um, or I haven't quite gone into this business of uh, uh, exaltation with God in great detail, but um, what I'm going to do now is focus on some uh, classic examples of appeals to the afterlife to justify violence. Okay? Um, now, these are not the only form of justifications for religious violence that are on offer. 
They're just uh, one subclass that I uh, deal with in a chapter of the book. Okay. Most but not all religions involve afterlife beliefs. Most people believe in life after death. Give you evidence on this. And there are many different afterlifes on offer, but they tend to cluster into two big important uh, schools of thought. There's salvation and there's reincarnation. So salvific approaches, um, standard Christianity and Islam, and reincarnation in Hinduism and Buddhism. These are, you know, huge religions, and vast numbers of people, in fact, believe in either salvation or reincarnation. I'll uh, go through appeals to salvation first, I'll show you the justifications that are offered, and then I'll quickly go through uh, appeals to reincarnation to justify violence. Okay, so salvation uh, is typically said to be a precondition for entry to heaven, according to most Christians and Muslims. And heaven's pretty important. If you get to heaven, standard view, you can expect persistent happiness for all eternity. So that's pretty good. Um, in fact, when you think about it, it's going to outweigh um, pretty much any, well, it's going to outweigh any um, worldly um, consequence. Okay? Um, oftentimes, uh, salvific religions also have the threat of hell, persistent suffering for eternity on offer. Okay. Um, now there are variations. So uh, Catholic Church uh, had on on the books a sort of a third state uh, purgatory, which is a kind of uh, we've had to atone your various sins before going to heaven. And there are uh, Mormons, as I mentioned, have classes of heaven. There's the um, there's the top class, the exaltation with God, and there's the kind of uh, there's two further classes of heaven. Okay, so um, there are variations on this common theme, but that's the uh, that's the usual thing. Um, now, the consequences of being allowed or denied entry into heaven are overwhelmingly more important than any worldly consequences. So, appeals to these can be used by both consequentialists and those non-consequentialists to allow that consequences make a significant moral difference to justify violence. Okay. Um, you might think, well, hell could make a difference as well, because uh, um, there's a lot at stake sending people to hell. Um, turns out not to be very important for uh, the justifications that have been offered, which, uh, which is just as well, because uh, a lot of 20th century Christian theologians tend to downplay hell. So they either say something like, well, you know, God doesn't really send people to hell, or doesn't send them there for that long, or hell's a kind of empty place, or stuff like this. The, the general line of it is that it's hard to believe that a perfectly good um, God would send people to hell. Um, no such problem in Islam. Um, the Quran is very explicit about, uh, about hell. <laughs> okay, um, But in any case, hell turns out not to be very important for these um, uh, justifications. What is important is uh, what's known in the philosophical literature on this as salvific exclusivism. The important point being that there are certain, only certain categories of people who can get into heaven. So what's crucially important is to be in the, revel be in the right category. Now, if you're a believer in uh, doctrines of the Catholic Church, pre-Vatican II, then... Uh, they are very exclusive. So only Catholics can go to heaven. 
Okay, that's the official lineup to uh, 1962 to five. Okay, and uh, uh, here's a classic statement: uh, the Council of Florence, outside the Catholic Church, no one, neither heathen nor Jew nor unbeliever nor schismatic, will have a share in eternal life, but will rather be subject to everlasting fire. I think it's pretty clear. Okay, um, Southern Baptists currently are an ex- the, the Catholic Church has renounced exclusivism, by the way, but Southern Baptists haven't, but they're not as exclusive as Catholics were, but they do maintain that only Christians can enter heaven. Um, most Sunni Muslims, uh, Sunni Muslims are salvific exclusivists. They say there's a criterion for getting into heaven, but you don't have to be a Muslim, you have to be a person of the book, so you have to be a monotheist. Okay? Um, so, this is, uh, whatever the details of the doctrine, you've got to do what's uh, necessary to uh, be eligible to go to heaven. Current view, the Catholic view is salvific preferentialist, uh, as I call it. Being Catholic will um, make it more likely that you go to heaven, but it's not necessary. And Mormons never claim that um, uh, you had to be a Mormon to go to heaven. They think anyone can get in, but... You know, you have to do certain things to get into the best form of heaven. Okay, now, the classic Christian appeals to the afterlife to justify violence are to justify uh, killing heretics and apostates. Why is this so? Well, because heretics and apostates are particularly dangerous because... uh, if they, they are often inclined to try and spread their doctrines, and if they succeed, then um, they will prevent uh, people who accept those doctrines from being eligible to go to heaven. Okay, so there's a lot at stake. So here's, um, here's Aquinas on the subject. So he's pretty hard on the heretics, regard to heretics. This is a sin whereby they deserve not only to be separated from the church by excommunication, but also, also to be severed from the world by death. It's a much greater matter, graver matter to corrupt the faith which quickens the soul than to forge money which supports uh, temporal life. And uh, he goes on in that vein. Um, it's not just Catholics who uh, take this line. Uh, here's Calvin. Um, now, Calvin is um, arguing against people who um, advocated mercy for uh, a heretic. The heretic in question is this guy, Michael Servetus who denied the doctrine of the Trinity and opposed infant baptism. These may seem to you to be fairly minor matters, but at the time they were considered very important, and if you uh, were foolish enough to um, believe the stuff that Servetus came out with, your chances of going to heaven, um, according to Calvin, were nil. So um, it's very important, given that you want uh, everlasting happiness, that you, um, that you take a hard line on these heretics. So, uh, um, you know, he, he has this analogy of, uh, you know, if, how foolish it is to try and save the wolves when you expose the poor sheep, the people who might be taken in by the false doctrine of the heretic. Okay, so um, it goes on in that vein. Anyway, this is the standard Christian use of uh, appeals to the afterlife to justify violence, and it has a, a very strong history. And as you can see, these are these are central figures who thought it was appropriate to use violent uh, 
uh, and coercive means to prevent uh, heresy and apostasy. Okay? Um, now, you might reason like this. You might say, well, hang on a minute. It's all very well to prevent people, uh, to use violence to prevent people being heretics. I can understand that. We don't want uh, people who might be eligible to go to heaven to be prevented by being taken in by these doctrines. But what about converting people to Christianity? Because standard view is, if they're not Christians, they've got no chance of getting into heaven. They've got no chance of eternal happiness. Why don't you use violent and coercive means to um, get uh, to force conversion? Well, of course, there's a history of using violent and coercive means to force conversion. But the standard view on this is that this is just not acceptable. So Aquinas's line is, well, look, it's just a waste of time. God isn't going to grant <coughs> salvation to those who have, not, who have not freely chosen Christianity. So apostates and heretics are a kind of special case. They've freely chosen her- uh, Christianity, and then they've started to backslide. So they've made a they've made a commitment to God, and that's binding. And uh, so you know, feel free to use violent means on them. But people who haven't made a free choice to become Christians uh, can't uh, get into heaven anyway. However, it was often the case that um, thinking about the importance of salvation and possibly political concerns about spreading Christianity, um, the um, idea of free choice uh, was taken very liberally, was, was construed maximally widely. So here's Pope Innocent III. His basic line is this, if someone was being compelled to undergo a baptism ceased objecting at any point during the baptism, then the church is entitled to interpret the cessation of their objections as evidence that they had not committed to the baptism. Sorry, that they had consented to the baptism. Okay, So you're being forcibly uh, baptised and you start protesting and at a certain point you sort of... <laughs> I don't know, you gag on the water or something, you're not protesting, ah, you've consented. Okay, um, But you can see um, the motivation behind this, doing you a favour. If you uh, aren't shown to consent, you can't become Christian and you can't go to heaven. So it's all in a good cause. Now, there's someone, and uh, a very famous figure, who thinks that you should uh, coerce belief in Christianity, and this is Duns Scotus. Okay, so Duns Scotus um, argues for the baptism, the baptism of non-Christian children, regardless of the wishes of their parents. So the standard line on this was that... Um, you can't just go around um, poaching children and baptising them if they're not Christians because they have this, uh, uh, they're, they're uh, under the control of their parents. Dunscoda says, no, that's, that you've got this all wrong because your duty to God outweighs the, any duties uh, to respect the rights of non-Christian parents. Okay, so uh, go and forcibly baptise them. He also thinks you should forcibly baptise um adult non-Christians as well. I, I should just say his arguments are uh, directed at the Jewish community only, but that is simply because that was the only religious minority in Britain at the time Dunscotus was writing, um, and it looks to me like the arguments just goes through straightforwardly for any religious minority or any, any non-Christian group. So what he says is, look, it's religiously just for those parents themselves to receive baptism forcibly with threats and fear because although they will not be real believers at heart, 
The evil for them to be stopped from serving the laws of impunity is less than serving that law freely. What's more, if their children are well-educated, they'll be real believers in the third and fourth generation. Okay? <laughs> Seems plausible enough to me. Okay. So, I've just given you a snapshot of the, uh, the most influential um, Christian appeals to uh, the afterlife to justify violence. And uh, what I've tried to do is convince you that you should take these seriously. They're well-formed arguments. If you believe the relevant premises, um, you might still have some uh, qualms about them, but uh, there's nothing obviously uh, uh, wrong with the arguments. Now, I'm going to tell you about some um, appeals to reincarnation to justify violence. Now, you might think this is, this is a bit odd, but... Um, Yet, uh, appeals have been made, and recently, to reincarnation to justify violence. So, just a kind of a snapshot, I'm giving you a kind of a, a template here. Um, you know, many versions of Hinduism and Buddhism have uh, details that won't be captured by this, so this is kind of just a, a pro forma, as it were. Um, Standard view in Hinduism and Buddhism is we're reincarnated many, many times, and the quality of our reincarnation depends on our karma, where our karma is a kind of moralised causal property. Okay, So as you go along in life, you're accruing negative karma or positive karma, depending on the moral quality of your acts. Okay, And at the end of your life, uh, this has consequences for your reincarnation. And there are various different things you can end up with. You can end up a higher or lower status person, a superior or lesser creature, or in a better or worse situation, including in heavens or hells, um, although th these are kind of different from uh, Christian and Muslim heavens and hells because they're temporary places. You can work your way out of hell, for example, or uh, you know, fail to uh, maintain your proper standing in heaven and uh, drop back. Um, eventually, a very good person who works your way through all this can escape the cycle of reincarnation, and this is thought to be highly desirable. Okay, so that's the, that's the template. Now, violence is a cause of negative karma. So if you commit a violent act, your karma score is going to go down, so generally you don't want to be violent. Despite this, most Buddhists and Hindus are not pacifists, and indeed there's a long history of Buddhist and Hindu support for war and violence. Okay, now, what gets a bit confusing here is that many Buddhist and Hindus propound a doctrine of non-violence. So you might think they are pacifists in the kind of Western sense. But if you go to the details of many of these doctrines of non-violence, what you'll discover is that killing motivated by compassion is said to be consistent with non-violence. Okay? So mostly these are not pacifist doctrines in the sort of standard Western sense. And uh, in 2011, the Dalai Lama, who is a well-known advocate of non-violence, also endorsed the assassination of Osama bin Laden. Okay, so there you are. There's <coughs> clearly a case where um, killing can be said to be compatible with the doctrine of non-violence. Why did he do this? Well, he thought that it would be compassionate to kill bin Laden. And um, so uh, why is this? Well, bin Laden has led a very bad life, he's been accumulating much negative karma, but more importantly, everything Bin Laden has said 
had done suggests that were he to continue living, he would continue to lead a bad life and accrue even more a negative karma and make things even worse for himself in the afterlife, in the next life. Okay? So it's actually an act of compassion on this view to kill him now to prevent him from making things worse for himself. Okay? So that appears to be why the Dalai Lama uh, went along with uh, the assassination of bin Laden. Now, the very same argument was used by Shako Asahara, the leader of the Aum Shinriko, you remember the sarin gas attack in Tokyo in 1995, uh, to justify the uh, sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway. It killed 12, sometimes it's said to be 13, it was a small number, but they intended to kill many more and thousands of people were injured. Um, now, the Aum Shinriko is a syncretist group, but its main roots are in Tibetan Buddhism, although if you ask Buddhists, they will try and downplay this connection because they're somewhat embarrassed by this. But doctrinally, insofar as it has core doctrines, they're Buddhist doctrines. Uh, and uh, the connections go deep. Embarrassing for the Dalai Lama, he uh, is a good friend of, Aumshin, of the head of Aum Shinriko, Shoko Asahara. Um, so they, they seem to have met several times and they got on like one another very well and so on and so on. Um, now, Asahara's view was that it was not just uh, one or two people who you could pick out who were leading very bad lives, who uh, would be appropriate targets for compassionate killing. It's, it's everyone Japanese. See a Japanese person, you can just tell they're leading a very bad life and they would benefit karmically from an early death. So you're doing them a big favour by killing them. Okay, now you might say this, well, all very well for them, but what about me? Won't killing someone harm my own karmic situation? Um, well, at this point, classically, uh, the Buddhist line on this has been to wheel in uh, something like the Western intention foresight distinction. So if killing is motivated by compassion, um, then you're not, um, you're not intending uh, murder. What you're intending is to improve the karmic situation of the person. So you yourself don't accrue negative karma. However, if you... Uh, uh, Asahara takes this one step further, and what he says is, look, if you're actually courageous enough to take the risk of going through this complicated reasoning and risk killing someone, that uh, uh, is acting very badly, then that accrues much credit to you. It's not just that it's neutral, it's actually um, because you're being so kind as to... Um, Perform such an act for someone and risk your own future, you uh, accrue much credit and you progress significantly closer to escaping the cycle of reincarnation. Okay, now I've just got a few more minutes, so I'm going to go through. Um, I've just got some material about suicide, which is a kind of a special case, and this is kind of more of a curiosity or anything. Um, so, killing yourself. Uh, might look like something that's um, going to be, if it's justified at all, it's, it's going to be justified rather differently than um, the way in which I've uh, outlined standard Christian and uh, Buddhist, Hindu, Buddhist and Hindu justifications for, uh, for appealing to the afterlife to kill. Um, 
We'll start with the uh, appeals to reincarnation. It's very hard to justify suicide by appealing to the cycle of reincarnation because, look, if you realise that you've been making, you might say you've been lied and you suddenly realise you're making your own karmic situation worse in this life, then what you should do is change your ways right now and start uh, uh, accruing positive karma. Okay? If you kill yourself, you just uh, get yourself a little dose of negative karma and you're not helping yourself. What you need to do is start doing good deeds. Okay? There's one exception. If you know for a fact that you're ready to exit the cycle of reincarnation, then on some doctrines, uh, you're entitled to kill yourself. That's uh, on, on some Buddhist views. But generally not. It's very hard to justify suicide by appeal to reincarnation. What about by appeal to salvation? Well, for Muslims, this is completely out because the Quran explicitly forbids suicide. Okay? But the Bible, surprisingly enough, doesn't mention suicide. Okay? I, I found this very surprising, but as far as I can see, it doesn't mention it. Um, from the 5th century onwards, however, uh, the standard Christian line has been suicide is, in fact, forbidden on the grounds that it's a form of murder. So Augustine influentially argues this, um, and then the arguments are kind of buttressed uh, by Aquinas later on. But... Um, Pre-5th century, there's a diversity of Christian views on suicide. So some of the old church fathers actually endorsed suicide under some circumstances. The most influential one of these is Justin, who said that suicide is an appropriate response for women whose chastity is threatened. Okay? So it's worse um, to um, have your chastity threatened than it is to commit suicide, so you should kill yourself. Um, this is actually a kind of a step forward for feminism. Augustine uh, comes along and says, no, you've got that wrong, Justin, um, because the woman is actually not guilty of anything, so she needn't kill herself. Okay? Um, but up until that time, it was thought that... Uh, it was basically thought that being raped uh, was somehow... Um, uh, uh, something that you would be... you would feel... you should feel guilty about. And um, this was a this was a, thought to be an appropriate response. Now, there's a curious group called the Donatists who um, advocated something called this is in the fourth century heroic suicide. Um, so this this is a this is very much a sect. It's not a mainstream view, but it's kind of interesting. And what they argue is this: look, if someone's threatening to kill you. Um, they're doing a very bad thing if they go ahead and kill you. So it's better for you, and you're entitled to do this, to kill yourself, to prevent them from committing murder. Okay? Prevent someone from committing murder to be very bad for them and for their future afterlife by yourself killing yourself. Okay? So that was their uh, <coughs> line of arguments. And apparently they would jump down ravines and into fire rather than allow murder. A very small subgroup of the Donatists um, wanted to uh, kind of get to heaven fast, and what they are alleged to have done is approach pagans and demand that they kill them, threatening them with violence if they did not. And the thought was, well, the pagans aren't going to go to heaven anyway, so you may as well um, uh, you may as well go in for this. And the benefit is that you yourself uh, can go to heaven. Uh, straight away. So um, I'll leave it there. So the the sort of take-home message that I'm prepared to defend is I think these arguments are, are good if you accept the relevant premises. They're no worse 
um, I want to argue, than uh, regular secular arguments that purport to justify violence. You might think that um, no arguments that uh, uh, justify violence are any good if you take a kind of strong pacifist line. Um, I'm, I'm not sort of getting into that, at least not in the book. Um, what I would argue is that if you do take that view, um, these arguments are on a par with uh, regular secular arguments justifying violence. Okay, so I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs>